All right, let's go before the Lord and pray and ask for his blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you again for this time that you've granted us to go into your word and learn about Christ, about the matter of salvation and how you determined to do these things to save your people from their sin, from the condemnation of their sin and to declare them as righteous on account of that righteousness of Christ in which there's no flaw. We thank you for these that you've gathered to hear and I pray that you would bless them with understanding and give them all that they need to know to stand before God blameless. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning one and all. This is Pastor James again to share with you the understanding of the gospel of Christ Jesus. I trust everyone is doing okay in their particular context. And I determined to do this recording because I have other commitments on Sunday. So I am going to record this message for you so that you have something to hear. And yet this is a very wonderful, very important, very needful understanding. And I pray that the Lord will give you understanding. And this is our number six message in the book of Romans, number six message. And today we are going to be working our understanding from chapter two, I believe from verses one to maybe 15 or 16 thereabout. Let's see what the Lord will give us for understanding. And we begin as always by reading from the text. And I'm going to be reading today from the New English translation, I believe it is, but we'll see. This is what the word of the Lord says, Romans 2. Therefore, you are without excuse, wherever you are, when you judge someone else. For on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself because you who judge practice the same things. Now we know that God's judgment is in accordance with truth against those who practice such things. And do you think whoever you are when you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you escape God's judgment? Or do you have contempt for the wrath of his kindness, forbearance and patience and yet do not know that God's kindness leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will reward each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by perseverance in good works seek glory and honor and immortality but wrath and anger to those who live in selfish ambition and do not obey the truth but follow unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress on everyone who does evil, on the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew first and also the Greek. 
For there's no partiality with God. For all who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous before God. But those who do the law will be declared righteous. For whenever the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, these who do not have the law are a law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts as their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or else defend them. On the day when God will judge the secrets of human hearts according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. And that is a lot of wonderful testimony and may the Lord grant understanding of his word. We have one title, The Condemnation of the Moralist. The Condemnation of the Moralist. This is a wonderful message. If the Lord will grant me the grace to speak faithfully and clearly. And we continue with our introduction to the gospel of Paul according to the book of Romans, working to understand the different pieces. Because if we do not know or understand and believe the different pieces, then we risk believing that which is false about God, false about Christ and salvation, and thus to say a false hope. Unfortunately, many people do not want to engage their minds and understand God's arguments. And that is why even after a thousand hours of preaching and teaching that salvation cannot be lost. Someone still is going to come and ask if they are saved and if they have lost their salvation because of some sin that they did or are doing what they are feeling on that day or that week and what things they have done or are doing or not done. And so they reduce the testimony of the gospel to themselves and something that they are doing or not doing. And there's no assurance of salvation as long as we think like that. But we tend to be gentle and kind for the sake of Christ. But ultimately, one can only be in that state of ignorance and unbelief because they are not listening to what God is saying. They are not hearing what God is saying. Jesus in John chapter 10 said, He will lose none of those that were given him by the Father. No one is able to snatch any of them from his hands and from the Father's hands. And he meant it. So believe it. End of story. So, to say salvation can be lost is unbelief. To think that the matter of eternity is settled in how we feel on any given day is also unbelief. 
Okay? It's unbelief. We can't think like that. We can't reason like that. There's no righteousness in being ignorant. Okay? Paul is going to say later in Romans 10 about the Jews that they have zeal, but not in line with the truth. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. So we have to learn. We cannot glory in ignorance of the truth. But we'll go back to Romans 1, where from verses 18 to 32, Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has condemned the unrighteous people of the pagan world and has said, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God has been made plain to them. God personally made it simple and clear for all to see that he exists and he is worthy of glory and honor. Because since the creation, God has made his invisible attributes of power and glory known. How? Paul says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, or Godhead, have been clearly seen. Clearly seen. The invisible has been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. That's the conclusion. What can be known about God has been made clear to everyone. And so none has any plausible excuse before God. And that to say, there's nothing called an atheist as far as God is concerned. Even all the so-called scientists who refuse or deny the knowledge of God are only suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Because they clearly see, even in their science and the discoveries, that someone made the creation. Someone made the creation. And all those who attribute God's power of creation to Mother Nature are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That's all they're doing. And all those who ascribe God's work to evolution are in serious trouble because that which has no life cannot cause life. It cannot cause anything. Life cannot just come out from the mud by itself. It's not going to happen. That's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So the Holy Spirit's conclusion is that none has any excuse because God has much evidence against men and women that they know he exists. It is plain to them and in them, God has made this known plainly. The invisible God has made himself visible 
in his works. He is invisible because God is spirit, but he has made himself visible through what he has accomplished. And human philosophy can only explain away God and leave people stuck in Romans 1 country, which is condemnation. If you remain in Romans 1 country, you're still under condemnation. So, because of the general revelation or light of nature that is in all men, in you and me, all men are responsible and accountable to God for their sins. Men and women are responsible and accountable for their sins, not because they have ability to do otherwise, but because God makes them responsible. And God also makes men and women responsible because he has given us enough knowledge of him to glorify him and to honor him, to give him thanks. But he says, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened, became useful, useless, unprofitable in their thoughts. That is the condition of all men and women, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from Christ. So the suppression of the truth caused man to be futile in their thoughts, in their thinking. Their thoughts were only evil continually unprofitable as far as God is concerned. You even see or hear that testimony right in Genesis chapter 5 that the thoughts and or inclination of the mind were only evil continually. So their senseless hearts their senseless hearts were darkened because they suppressed the truth. They kept and keep holding the truth down, which is God's light, so that it would not shine. They are trying and have been trying to extinguish the light. So where light is suppressed, there can only be darkness to fill in the void. It's either light or darkness. Those are the only allowable categories. And in doing this, God says they claimed to be wise. They ascribed wisdom to themselves for this foolishness. How can one who has refused the truth be a paragon of wisdom? They claim to be wise. Go around and ask people if they are foolish. They say, no, I don't think I am that foolish. By that, they're claiming some wisdom. Yeah, I'm not the sharpest knife, but I am not that blunt. I have some wisdom. But God says, no. (laughs) Yes, they claim to be wise, but they became fools. Because they cannot be wisdom, wisdom apart from possessing the truth. And Christ is the truth. 
the light, the power and wisdom of God. And there's no other. But see how their light became darkness. How their wisdom became foolishness. God says they exchanged or traded the glory of the immortal and incorruptible God for lesser and lower things of his creation and made them equivalent. They made a God after their own image resembling the corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. That's how they reduced the knowledge of God to, to things created, to some very inferior things. Animals that don't even take a shower. Yeah? Raccoons and stuff. <laughs> and skunks. The true knowledge of a person is not shown in their money, business, enterprise, acumen, because many of these guys who have shown themselves to be good business people and have made lots of money are still haters of Christ. They are still darkness dwellers. Yes, they have a lot of possessions. Yes, they may think they have high civilization. But if they do not know God, they're foolish. That's what God says. Any who does not know God, no matter how philosophically astute they sound, God says they're fools. They're fools. In other words, what you worship tells more about your eternal standing than what you actually do. Faith reveals more about one's doctrine and one's relationship with God, whether they know God because God has come and revealed himself in a special way. Because many do works who still ascribe glory to the power of their own will and ambition and planning. To which Jesus said, or will say on that day of judgment, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you lawless ones, I never knew you. They wanted to tread their works for eternal life. They still do not know God, despite their pretensions of religion. And I'll say this again, and without apology, that human free will, theology, and thinking is ascribing to the creature and a sinner for that matter, that which belongs to God alone. It is worshipping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God did not give human beings a will that is free. That's not true. Because to say that is to say God left eternal matters in the hands of his creation to self-determine. 
and that is false. God has foreordained, he has predetermined all things from the end to the beginning. He is so much invested in his glory to leave anything to you or your Biden to finish it for him. Yeah? <laughs> because men and women do not want to retain the knowledge of God. Men and women did not want to retain the knowledge of God. And so what did God do? God did not give up on them to say, Oh, like Pilate, I'm washing off my hands on my creation. I have been defeated. I'm going to throw me a pity party. No, that's not what the text says. God does not give up on anything. The text says God gave them over to the desires of their hearts. God gave them over to something. God charted, defined this course for them. He directed them to go on a particular course in their depravity. For this reason, verse 26 of Romans 1 says, For this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions. And that means degrading or filthy passions. But just how degrading? Verse, six, verse 26 continues and says, For their women exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And likewise, the man also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Do you see the exchange that happened? Women exchanged. Men exchanged. They do not want to follow the natural order as God had ordained for things. And God did not say that he was empowering choice among men and women. Rather, he says, this was he giving people over in judgment of their sin. He abandoned them to something not in something. He abandoned them to something. He just did not leave them in their particular sin. He gave them over to other things. And there's no piece of legislation. There's no march. No flags. No lobbying that can change that judgment that God has imposed. Those things can only change other sinners' opinion about sin so as to accommodate it, so as to approve it, but never God. God will never compromise with sin even though he is the sovereign one behind it. And if God is not pleased, then he cannot be persuaded God cannot be persuaded. 
apart from Christ. So he gave people over to a depraved mind, to a debased mind, to a mind that approves of only the debased things, the things that have no value. And the Greek word that is translated as debased was used for metals and coins. A good coin, when they still used to make good coins, was and should be made of pure precious metals like gold and silver. You don't make a good coin from iron or pig iron. But because these are precious metals, they are hard to find. To make more of them for the exchange of value, to put them in circulation, what did the governments do? They debased the value by using lesser metals, by mixing a little bit of the precious with the cheaper ones, <laughs> like copper, zinc, lead, best metals. Yeah? So the best metals are common metals that corrode, they tarnish, they oxidize, if anybody is a chemistry person. They corrode relatively quickly when exposed to air or moisture. And what happens then? That it reduces the value of the metal or the coin. It reduces the value. Okay? So, to debase a coin means a reduction in the value of the coins which has happened because the pure metal, such as gold or silver, has been mixed with a base metal. Okay? So the value has gotten less. So, a debased coin meant then that the metal or coin was not approved because it did not stand the test of quality and real value. Because people could do this back in the day. They would make their own coins that appeared like they had gold in them and yet they were mostly debased. They did not stand the test of quality and real value. And so the depraved mind is unfit. It is a reprobate mind. It is debased. It corrodes easily to the corruption of sin or due to the corruption of sin. So because the coin was debased, 
when it was discovered, it was un unapproved, it was cast away and rejected. So God has cast away, he has rejected, he has given men and women over to a mind that is not approved. Yeah? <laughs> because as a debased matter or coin has no value, and so is one who has been given over to a debased mind. And so men and women approve of, of all those wicked things because God gave them over to a debased mind. So the thinking and saying that, oh, because I was born that way, does not work. It does not work. Not to God. So a mind that is lacking in precious metals, in other words, in the precious knowledge of God, because the precious metals represent the knowledge and truth of God, the incorruptible knowledge and truth of God in Christ Jesus, because God, God is incorruptible. You don't find God as a mixture not as a chemical compound with other chemicals or other elements. you find God by itself. Yeah? So a mind that is lacking in the precious knowledge of God, the precious knowledge of Christ, yeah, is corroded, is debased, and as a result, people do and approve of things that they should not do. And God says in verse 32 of Romans 1, Although they fully know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but also approve of those who practice them. And so Paul's conclusion is that all these sinners in Romans 1, in Romans 1 country, fully know the consequences of their sins. They know that the wages of sin is death. But even knowing that, they do not rally for others to stop. No, they rally to recruit and approve of those who practice the same because misery loves company. But the whole scheme is essentially pointing the middle finger to God to say, we will not let this man to rule over us. But God says in return, none of these people shall escape because they have no excuse. And he will be vindicated as righteous when he brings down his judgment against the wickedness of men and that is everybody. Unless you are in Christ. And if we have understood the Holy Spirit's argument 
then we should establish the truth of the human condition, human spiritual condition, that naturally men and women are born sinners, born dead in trespasses and sins. That is what it means. And that is the doctrine of total depravity, total human depravity. And total depravity engenders total inability. In other words, they go together. If you are totally depraved, of which all born in Adam are born totally depraved, and that means they are also born with total spiritual inability. In other words, spiritually, we are not able to come out of this condition by an act of our own will or power. So one who is born in Romans 1 country cannot rise and come to Christ by themselves. They cannot agree with the truth because the truth is spiritually appraised whilst the residents of Romans 1 country are unspiritual people. They cannot understand the truth. Naturally, men and women cannot understand the truth. Also, one of the conclusions to make from this truth is about the matter of election. Because if Romans 1 is true about the spiritual condition of all men, then it Im implies that election cannot and could not have been based on foreseen faith. For sin faith of those who would believe, as some want to argue, especially the Armenians. Because the Armenians want to base election on the decision of the creature, not on the decision of God. But if Romans 1 is true, of which it is true, it is impossible that election can be based on foreseen faith because there's no one in Romans 1 who has faith. All those who live in Romans 1 country are born as unbelievers. They are born dead in trespasses and sins. And if God were to foresee your actions, and then to base his decision of election, then none would be saved. Because none could do anything that pleases him. None could come to him. As Jesus said, none can come to him unless the Father draws him, unless the Father grants it. And that to say, Election is unconditional. It has to be unconditional. It is based on his grace alone in Christ. Also, election was done before the foundation of the world. So election, biblical election, has no strings attached. It is not conditioned on something that God foresaw that you would do or not do. It is wholly conditioned on God's love 
and Christ alone from before the foundation of the world, as I said. Okay? So that's what happens when you are in Romans 1 country. So what's the point? What really is the larger point then of Romans 1? The point is that God has condemned all the unrighteous and left them hopeless. Now, that takes us to another subset of people who are also found residing in Romans 1 country and that group of people is under the heading of the moralist. <laughs> the moralist. The moralist is one who is unduly concerned with morality and the morals of others. They claim to live according to a set of moral principles or standards that they have set for themselves. But the moralist does not stop at themselves. No, they try to force others to abide by the principles and standards that they have set for themselves. And by this, to make them better people. And saying, agree and do our standards and be approved by me. And you become a good person. You become a more advanced creature. Like spreading democracy across the world to civilize the nations. It's nothing but an act of moralism. Not righteousness. There's no righteousness in that. The moralist is found among the nations as they are found with, within the individual people. The moralist is found even among those who were not traditionally under the law of Moses. And the moralist would have agreed 100% with Paul in Romans 1. The moralist agrees with Paul in Romans 1. He would have attended the church or preaching services that Paul preached as long as Paul did not go to Romans 2. The Jew would agree with Paul in Romans 1. The Muslims would agree with Paul in Romans 1. They would come and say, yes, Paul, amen to that. Get them. Get them, Paul. Your ministry is good. It needs more funding. <laughs> and there are many moralists in the professing church world. Even the reformed camp. A lot of moralists there. And if you know, you know them. They're very passionate when it comes to Romans 1. They're very passionate when they're talking about the sins of the Romans 1 country. But they're very compromising. They're very lukewarm. They're very watered down when it comes to Romans 4. To Romans 8. No condemnation for those in Christ 
Huwe in Romans 1. No imputation of sin to those in Romans 1. That's Romans chapter 4. Romans 9 teaching. They don't want to talk about it. Because they are moralists who are claiming that they are preaching the gospel. So the moralist of the pagans is in the same WhatsApp group as the Pharisee under the law. They are in the same group. But Paul comes and says, Not so fast, Mr. and Miss Moralist. But the, the moralist is just not men. The women too. They come as a couple. Mr. and Mrs. Moralist. Paul says, I am going to take you down. I am going to take you down. Here and now, so Paul sets his pen against them to condemn them and says, and that means verse 1 of Romans 2. Paul says, therefore you are without excuse. Whoever you are, when you judge people, when you judge someone else, for on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself because you who judge practice the same things. The moralist comes and judges other people as unrighteous. He judges those in Romans one country as unrighteous and condemns them based on themselves as the standard. And God says they are using the wrong measurement for judgment. Secondly, they are not fit for judgment. They are not fit to judge anyone. They are not fit to judge anyone. Thirdly, they too are condemned. <laughs> they too are condemned for on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself. Because you who judge practice the same things. You do the same things. So the moralist is under the same judgment of sin and condemnation just as all the residents of Romans 1 country who are worshipping the four-footed beast and creeping things. But the problem is the moralist uses a relative scale of righteousness. They measure themselves by themselves and then they use their own standard, apply their own standard to determine the righteousness and salvation of others. This here is very important because it tells us that just an outward show of righteousness is not the righteousness of God. Jesus already taught this with respect to the people group that he dealt with, the Jews. This is what he said to the Jews in Matthew 23, 27 and 28. He said, what to you? That's judgment. When Jesus says, what to you? That's not a Christmas greeting. That's judgment. What to you? 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Wow, wow, wow. Jesus, be nice to people. No. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you look righteous to people. <laughs> See how Jesus is connecting things? From the whitewashed tombs with dead people, rotten and stinking. And then he brings it to them and says, that's a picture physically, but spiritually. On the outside, you look righteous to people. Oh, you look so righteous in those clothes and covering your face and long dresses and you're so kind, you're so polite. But inside, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The moralist looks beautiful from outside. Whitewashed tombs. They are morally well swept and kept. They look clean. But Jesus said they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. They stink to God. They do. Because Jesus sees through their false religion, their religiosity, their false righteousness, their self-righteousness. And he condemns them. And the more one is whitewashed in self-righteousness, the more Jesus hates them. And the more they hate Jesus. And the more they hate the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. Here Jesus again, in Luke 18, verse 9 and following the story of the Pharisee and the publican. Very familiar story that we love to go to for understanding of the gospel. Jesus also taught this parable to some who were confident <laughs> that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. That's always what happens with the moralist. The moralist is always confident that they are more righteous than others. That's why they accuse some of us as antinomians, because they think they are more righteous. So Jesus said, verse 10, Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself like this. He stood up and prayed about himself. Praying about himself and says, God, I thank you. Oh, I thank you. That I'm not like other men. <laughs> oh, I thank you. I'm not like, well, I'm not like Elagun. I am not like other men. I thank you. What kind of man I'm not like the extortionists who try to get things by force. Unrighteous people. Adulterers. Man, these people are just cheating on their husbands and wives. I'm not like that. I've been married for 57 years. I've been married for 25, 30 years. Yeah? 
or even like this tax collector here. I pay all my taxes. I pay all my taxes. This tax collector, like right here, he doesn't. He actually steals money from people. And I'm better than him. I fast twice a week. Yeah? I fast at the beginning of the year. I do my Daniel's fast. I do my Esther's fast. I do my whatever fast. We do our all night prayer. We do, we, we do stuff. I do things. Look at the eyes. I am not like other people. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. <laughs> I, 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 I. The testimony of the moralists. Verse 13. The text collector, however, stood afar off and would not even look up to heaven. But beat his breast and said, God be merciful to me, sinner that I am. God be merciful. My resume is too short. It's only one line. Have mercy on me. Be propitious to me on account of Christ. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified. Rather than the Pharisee, he went home as a righteous man before God. For everyone who exalts himself in self-righteousness will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. You humble yourself by bringing nothing and making your resume very short before God. Be merciful to me, sinner that I am. So the Pharisee was a moralist. He came before God. Pay attention to that and talked about himself and what he was doing. That's what the moralist does. They speak of the things that they are doing and have done in supposed righteousness, especially for God, and even have the nerve to compare themselves to other people, to the tax collectors right before God. I am not like other men that are found in Romans 1 country. I am not like them. Even this, this text collector, I am better than them. But the matter of righteousness is not whether you are better than the next person. It is about perfect righteousness. Have you met the standard of God's righteousness that is in Christ. That's the only judgment. So those who continue to attack us and call us antinomians, antinomians, is those who are against the law, anti-law, do not know what they are talking about. Because we are trying, by God's grace, to show them that they need to repent from what they perceive as righteousness and stand only in the righteousness of Christ imputed. A person who thinks he has graduated from Romans 1 country, 
still find themselves condemned if they seek refuge in being a moralist. The gospel is not turning you into a moralist. And this is wonderful teaching by the Holy Spirit. Since God's righteousness has been revealed in Christ, then any other righteousness has to be condemned. And that is exactly what God is doing. God is condemning the righteousness of man. He is condemning all so-called righteousness by men. Even of the best among them, as represented by the moralist. Hear this again. Romans 2. For on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself. Because you, because you who judge practice the same things. Pay attention to this again. Paul says, whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself. So it doesn't matter what it is that one thinks they are doing better than the other person, better than the other people. That is why the Jew cannot judge the Gentile. And the Romans and the Greeks cannot judge the barbarians as some awful group of people, as some uncivilized group of people immoral group of people because none is better than the barbarian. The barbarian is much of a sinner on his worst day as the Jew on his best day who claims to keep the law. As the Gentile high moralists, they are all on the same plane. Same level. Secondly, This is what Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is teaching. That moralism masks the real matter of sin and righteousness. Moralism, in many ways, according to this understanding, is actually a cover-up for sin. That is why a person needs to understand the issues of the gospel before judging people in the matter of salvation by their morals. That is why we should not use a changed lifestyle as the yardstick of judging salvation. Because many have changed who still do not believe the gospel. Many have only gone from Romans 1 to being moralists. They haven't gone to chapter 4. They haven't gone there. So we have to look for a faithful gospel testimony. We have to look for a faithful gospel testimony. We have to hear what people are saying is a matter of righteousness. What do they understand righteousness to be? Hear this verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment is in accordance with truth against those who practice such things. God's judgment against these who are in Romans 1 and their sins is not arbitrary. Even these who 
uh, the high moralist, it is in accordance with or in agreement with the truth. But then it does not end there. God's righteous judgment has been has not been subcontracted to you to condemn those who are Roman one citizens. <laughs> because you are no better. And do you think verse 3, and do you think, whoever you are, I don't care, when you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you escape God's judgment. God is not going to impute your judgment of these other sinners as righteousness for you. You still have to answer for your own sins. So just because you point out other people's sins does not make you a righteous person. And you can't escape God's judgment by mere moralism. That's what that is saying. So the Muslim who claims to be very pious is condemned just like the rest. And everyone in the entire human race has turned away from God and commits sins even though their differences of frequency extend and degree but sin is sin it requires and calls for God's judgment and there's nothing called I only sin occasionally like one is saying oh I only go on vacation occasionally the last time we went on vacation was pre-covid sin is not like that we sin every day. And the moralists cannot escape God's judgment. Whether pagan moralists or Jewish moralists, because none of their goodness is good enough for them to escape God's judgment. So with that train of thought, Paul now appeals to the matter of repentance and the gospel and says this, verse 4 of Romans 2, or do you have contempt for the wealth of his kindness, forbearance and patience, and yet do not know that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Paul says the moralist is too invested in their own righteousness. And in many ways, they have contempt for the wealth of God's kindness, patience, forbearance towards them, to not bring his judgment on them because God's kindness leads you to repentance. Repentance from what they deem as righteousness to what God calls righteousness. Do you see what is being said? The moralist thinks that they are righteous. And God's repentance is saying, no, you need to change your mind about what you think is righteousness. The moralist does not go drinking. They do not smoke. They do not chew. They do not borrow money. They do not default 
on anything. They pay everything on time. And God comes and says, but you still need to repent. <laughs> you still need to repent to Christ. If you should escape God's judgment, you still need to repent or else you are dead. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. The monolist is very stubborn and unrepentant in their self-righteous ways. And many gospel believers know this in their own circles. People who are very religious, they go to church. But Christ is just an enabler to help them in their self-righteousness project. The moralists, when they hear the gospel, they quickly turn the instructions, the imperatives, the admonitions of the scriptures into another law of righteousness. And they call anyone who presses on the righteousness of Christ alone as anti-law. That's what they do. They are so heavily invested in the imperatives of scripture. Every time you talk about Jesus, they always have to say, but Christ alone is enough. Christ alone is the righteousness. There's no but when it comes to Christ. He is salvation. So they are stubborn and unrepentant and yet still religious because they are not hearing spiritually. God has not opened their eyes. And God says, they are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment shall be revealed. God's righteous judgment against all unlawlessness, against all sin, against all those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness shall be revealed in his wrath. Even to the moralist. So what will happen in the day of God's wrath, verse 6? He will reward each one according to his works. And here now comes people who don't know what they're talking about. When they see that, they're like, see? It's about works righteousness. They think they found the proof text for works Righteousness, salvation. Righteousness by works. But one needs a very good understanding of the gospel to dissect these statements. Yes, it's true God will reward each one according to their works. The citizen of Romans 1 shall be rewarded or punished according to their works. And so is the moralists. They shall be judged according to their works. But here, how the judgment falls, follow me, someone, verse 7. This defines for you what Paul means by verse 6. Eternal life to those who by perseverance in good works Seek glory and honor and immortality. 
but wrath and anger to those who live in selfish ambition and do not obey the truth but follow unrighteousness. So two judgments are to be issued. Two judgments. And resulting in two outcomes. Number one, eternal life. And number two outcome, wrath. Eternal life to those who by perseverance in good works seek glory and honor and immortality. Question. How does one seek and find glory, honor and immortality by good works? When Paul has just condemned the moralist for their good works. Paul has just condemned the moralists for their good works. Yeah? Because the moralist is seeking these things of honor, glory, and immortality through their moralism and good works, which is the same testimony that the scribe came to Jesus in the story of the Good Samaritan. He came and asked Jesus, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The same question was asked Jesus by the rich young ruler. They want to do stuff. And Jesus rejected that testimony of doing stuff to end eternal life. So, question again. How then does one get eternal life and immortality? Only in the gospel of Christ. So those who persevere in the faith of the gospel are they who are engaged in good works. Because there's nothing good apart from being in Christ. There's nothing good apart from being found in Christ and having his righteousness. So faith in Christ is a good work that leads to eternal life, but a work that is caused by God. So the believer shall be paid according to what they've done as it is reckoned to them in the Christ who stood for them. Please, someone, you need to understand this. The believer, the redeemed, shall be reckoned to them according to their works as they stand in Christ. In Christ. In other words, God reckons the work of Christ to all the believers as theirs. He imputes all the work of Christ to them. And that becomes their work. And that is the basis of their judgment to eternal life, to honor, to glory and immortality. It's based on the work of another. It is not based on what they actually do. Remember where they were found they were found in Romans 1 country. <laughs> Romans 1 country. So the believers are not judged in themselves, but in Christ. And now to the contrary verse, verse 8 again. But wrath and anger to those who live in selfish ambition and do not obey the truth, but follow unrighteousness. So the second outcome to a different group of people is God's wrath and anger to those who live in selfish ambition 
and do not obey the truth. Now, what is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is the thinking that one can be righteous by themselves before God. The moralist lives in self-ambition of establishing their own righteousness and thus do not obey the truth of the gospel, which is the obedience to faith in Christ. Both Paul has already told us about the obedience of faith in the beginning part of Romans chapter 1. To bring the Gentiles to the obedience of faith in Christ or the faith of Christ. So self, selfish ambition is not trying to start a business. It's trying to establish and work your own righteousness so as to earn immortality and honor and glory, eternal life for yourself. Understand me? So whatever they are doing is following unrighteousness. So the moralists and even the unrepentant citizens of Romans 1 country are judged according to their works, which unfortunately only attract God's wrath because no one can do enough good works to escape God's judgment because our works cannot propitiate, they cannot satisfy God's wrath or his justice. I need to repeat this again for clarity. The believer in Christ is judged by God according to the perfect work and righteousness of Christ. That is why we say and repeatedly that if one denies or diminishes the doctrine of God's imputation of righteousness, we are left nothing with respect to the good news. The unbeliever, on the other hand, is judged according to everything that they have done because they don't have anyone to represent them. Do you understand the difference? The unbeliever, they are judged according to everything that they've done because they did not have anyone to stand for them to do all those things that are true and righteous and pleasing to God, which every redeemed person has in Christ. And whatever they did in the context of the unbeliever was not good enough, is not good enough, will never be good enough to merit eternal life and God's blessing. Verse 9, Romans 2 still. There will be affliction and distress on everyone who does evil, on the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew first and also the Greek. Wrath and anger, affliction and distress, is God's judgment on everyone who does evil. And that means everyone who is an unbeliever. Remember, even the redeemed used to do evil, 
in that they refused the knowledge of God. They even now still sin and yet there's no affliction and distress to them. Why? Because their sins were not imputed to them. But glory and honor and peace to them. <laughs> glory and honor and peace to those who do good. So doing good here cannot be a list of works. It can't be. It has to mean something different. It has to mean something different. It has to mean Christ. It has to mean being in Christ, believing in Christ, being under grace. So glory and honor and peace to the redeemed of Christ. Because Paul is not teaching work salvation here. Not at all. It's impossible for Paul to be preaching work salvation when he has Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5 coming. Yeah? There's no way. So the good works here is not speaking to what people actually do. This is in reference to faith in Christ. Because the next chapters will reveal what he is teaching with respect to how God makes a sinner righteous. Right here and now, Paul is working hard to destroy the sin and self-righteousness of man that the grace of God alone in Christ may be exalted, may be shown to be the only way to attain to immortality, to life itself eternal, to honor and glory. But in that, Paul is also setting the stage to give hope to the hopeless. Because if the moralist has no hope, then there's no hope for the unrighteous sinner in Romans 1. If the moralist has been condemned, then what are you going to do with those in Romans 1? Yeah? But Paul's gospel comes and gives hope to both groups. Verse 11. For there's no partiality with God. And that means there's no unrighteousness with God. He is not a respecter of persons, and so he does all things according to righteousness. So God's impartiality will show in this verse 12. For all who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And someone may argue and say, but would that not be unfair to condemn people who are not under the law? Because those who are under the law would have some advantage about what God actually requires. But because of the preceding arguments that Paul has given about people knowing God and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, he says it doesn't matter. He says it doesn't matter. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law and that means even those who were not under the codified law of Moses are still sinners. We're still sinners. 
because they were made sinners not by breaking of Mount Sinai, but by being in Adam, which thing Paul is going to address in Romans chapter 5, that by the sin of one man, death entered into the whole world. All sinned, right? So he doesn't need Mount Sinai to condemn the Gentiles. And also, these who were not under the law of Moses also know that they are sinners. They do not need Moses for that. The Gentile does not need Moses to know that they are sinners. And all who have sinned under the law shall be judged by the law. But how is that going to be fair? For people who are not under the same systems of moral or spiritual guidance. Verse 18. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous before God. But those who do the law will be declared righteous. This is a statement of fact. Paul says, it is not those who hear the law who are righteous before God. In other words, just hearing the law, talking law, means nothing before God. Yeah? Talking and hearing the law does not make a sinner righteous. But rather, those who do the law will be declared righteous before God. And that is true. Those who do the law shall be declared as righteous. But you have to understand what this means because there's a problem. And I'll address the problem with a question. Can one from Romans 1 country do the law? No, they can't because they're condemned. If you're condemned already, you cannot do the law. <laughs> Can the moralists do the law? No, they can't. They're condemned. Can a Jew do the law? No, they can't. They're condemned. But as a matter of principle, it's still true. Those who do the law will be declared righteous. The principle remains. But it is only true in principle, not in practice. And many preachers and professing Christians will say, Oh no, God does not mean for us to do the law to perfection. As long as you have some bent, as long as you have some inclination towards it, as long as you are sincere, then you are doing the law. We just have to be sincere. Foolishness. Lies. There's nothing like that. There's nothing called sincerely breaking the law. The law does not demand sincerity, but perfect obedience and the cursing of everyone who breaks it. That's Galatians 3.10. Yeah? Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do all the things that are written in the book of the law. They are cursed. You have to continue in every one of them. If you break one of them, you are guilty of the whole thing. So this sincerity thing does not work. So how does one do the law as to be declared as righteous? How do you do that? Because we are going to be in one or two of the categories that have been described to us. 
the very depraved Romans 1 citizens, the condemned moralists, or the condemned Jew. And that means a hopeless category. So how then do you do the law? As to be declared righteous. Only through the faith of the gospel. <laughs> Only through the obedience to the faith of Christ. That is what constitutes one as a doer and keeper of the law. I keep the law through faith in Christ. I am a law keeper, a perfect law keeper every day because of Christ. And that tells you about the offense of the gospel. I am a doer of the law through representation of Christ. The only law keeper to ever walk on planet earth. Christ Jesus, the only law keeper. If you are not Christ Jesus, you are not a law keeper by yourself. Okay? Verse 14. For whenever the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, these who do not have the law are a law to themselves. The Gentiles did not have the law of Moses, which means they were not bound by the old covenant of Mount Sinai. And for this reason, they are described as without law, but they still do by nature the things that are required by the law. And what is that which is required by the law? It is the righteousness of Christ. The law testifies of Christ. The law and the prophets testify of Christ. They testify of the righteousness of God. And these who do not have the law, Paul says, are a law to themselves by way of conscience. But they do the law by way of faith in Christ. So the Gentile does not need the law of Moses to fulfill the law. What they need, what you need, is Christ. They only need faith in Christ because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Gentile is not made better by being put under Moses. Because those who were already under Moses were condemned by Moses. So it doesn't help the Gentile who was kicking it already. The Gentile can only be made righteous by the faith of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And that is why Paul was adamant about bringing Gentile believers under Moses, under the law. Because Christ alone was enough for them. Grace alone was enough for them. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written in the hearts as the conscience bears witness and the conflicting thoughts accuse or defend them or else defend them. The Gentiles show that work of the law that is written in their hearts. What is that work of the law that is written in their hearts in this particular context? Number one, it is their conscience. But it has to be more. It is the testimony of Christ. 
because it is only the testimony of Christ that defends against a sinner. It is the testimony of the law that condemns a sinner. And the Gentile has both testimonies. Their conscience does convince them, convict them of their sin. And even by the faith of Christ, their same conscience also convinces them of Christ Jesus. So their conscience is that reduced form of the law, the uncodified law that bears witness of their sin and their conflicting thoughts. Yeah? Accusing them according to their conscience or else defending them according to the truth of the gospel. So this matter of conviction and having a clean conscience depends on what you believe. If you're going to continue with the testimony of Moses, you're going to be continually convicted of sin. If you're going to continue with the testimony of Christ, then you're going to be defended from that conviction of sin and you're going to have a clear conscience. And that you say, as I said, the Gentiles will believe the gospel without needing to pound Moses on them. Their conscience will defend them even by faith that is in the truth of Christ. The righteousness that is in Christ. Christ, the way and the life that is available also to the mind of the Gentile believers to see and believe because of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So on the day when God will judge the secrets of human hearts according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. So God is going to judge the secrets of human hearts according to the gospel of Christ and through Christ Jesus to whom all judgment has been given. So that to say Christ is ultimately the standard of God's judgment. Conclusion. As I said at the beginning, we must understand the matters of the gospel if we are to have a righteous judgment about it. And also, if we are to check if we are truly in the faith. The Romans one country citizen is condemned as unrighteous because they know the truth about God in his general revelation, the light of nature revelation, but they suppress it in unrighteousness. So the fact that they suppress it means they know it exists because you can't suppress something, you can't hold something as to hide it if it doesn't exist. Consequently, these people have not become better people, but became fools and began to worship the creature rather than the creator. And God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to a debased mind, to do things that are not fitting, things degrading, and yet condemns them still. But they are not without excuse. 
and will not escape God's judgment. But the moralist comes thinking that they are above the fray. <laughs> they think they are better than those in Romans 1. They think themselves a better human being than the rest. Even righteous. So they go about mocking others for their sins and saying, be like me, the righteous. Look unto me, the righteous. And God says, no. Whitewash tombs. Yeah? So the moralist is just as guilty as the rest. There are no better people. They actually do the same things that the unrighteous people do. But they cover it under moralism, setting standards for themselves and for others which they don't or can't keep, and yet condemning others but not themselves. And this is very important teaching because unless a person comes to the conclusion that they are not good, that they are not able to do anything good, then Christ just becomes an appendage to their self-righteousness. And when we press that even the redeemed are not righteous in themselves, many come seething against us, falsely accusing us of being anti-law. No, we are not anti-law. We are trying to show you this truth. This truth. That you are without excuse. You are without excuse. Whoever you are, when you judge someone else as an antinomian and yet you are breaking the law every day, what makes you? What does it make you? You accuse me of being anti-law and you break the law every day. What makes you? What does that make you? For on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself. Because you who judge practice the same things. So you can only judge me or anybody else as being anti-law if you actually think you are doing the law yourself. There's no way to run away from that. But God says, whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself. You're actually condemning yourself because you who judge practice the very same things. Yeah? <laughs> You're also breaking the law. Because Paul, by the Holy Spirit, wants you and I to know that for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous before God but those who do the law will be declared righteous. It's not about hearing, it's not about talking. It's about actually doing, and there's none who is doing the law. So the hope of the redeemed is Christ, who did the law on their behalf. He fulfilled every jot and tittle on behalf of his people. And God did not impute the sins of his people to them. He imputed the sin debt to Christ, and Christ came by his obedience, by his blood, made full propitiation. Yeah? And God now imputes and has imputed the righteousness of Christ 
the works of Christ to the account of his people and saying, these are the good works of my people. I shall judge them by what they have done and yet not themselves, but the Christ who stood in their place. That's the gospel. So the moralist will call you to repentance. If you're in Romans 1 country, we call you to repentance. And in the next message, we shall be calling the Jew, because the Jew is also condemned by the very law that they claim to keep. Yeah? Amen. We are done. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you again for these many words that have been spoken. That have been spoken. We thank you for opening the scriptures to us that we may understand the real issues, the matters of who we are as sinners, as those described in Romans 1, even in Romans 2, the moralist who comes and judges other people according to their own standard and condemns them, and yet they are guilty of the same things. Lord, may you deliver us from such testimony. We thank you for the testimony of Christ who has given us the righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for life, immortality, glory, and honor that you have promised us in Christ. We thank you for all these who have listened to this message and shall listen to this message. Lord, may you open and bless them, keep them, and help them in all things. We pray, we honor you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are done. God bless you. We'll catch you later. Bye-bye.